Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. The Hong Kong Observatory has just celebrated its 140th anniversary. The observatory was founded in 1883 and is perhaps best known for weather forecasting. But its work also covers earthquakes and radiation, among other tasks. And one of its first tasks was providing accurate timekeeping for passing ships. I love being at the observatory. There's the original old building there in colonial architecture and a more modern building constructed a hundred years later. I joined former director Shun Chi Ming in the history room to hear about his career from when he joined the observatory in 1986. CM has worked in radiation, seismology and is also quite the inventor, creating wind shear monitoring equipment on runways to help with aircraft safety which is now used internationally. I'll be doing more on the observatory and its history and Hong Kong's meridian lines over the next few months. I started to have an interest in physics when I was, I think, in the secondary school year four. At that time, because of my eye problem, actually, I very young, I got retinal detachment issues. So at that time, I was wondering about life, about philosophy. I tried to read up what brought me here in this world and where I'm going. But soon I got a little bit lost. And so I think about what should I study in the future. And at that time I found that maybe doing science, especially physics, would help answer my questions because the physics study the smallest particles in the world and also the biggest universe, cosmology. So that's how I started an interest in physics. So at quite a young age, Mm-hmm. You were really quite literally looking at the world and the universe around you. Yeah. So not uh, just thinking about your grades. Oh, no, that was not my concern. But of course, I have to be concerned about my eyes and whether I could continue my study. So um, may I ask, you know, with your eyes, how does that, does that affect your reading? And Oh, yes. My right eye, actually, the central vision blurred after my operation. And so I have to rely on my left eye. Actually, I'm still having this concern right now with, yeah. with my eyes uh, glaucoma now. So, yeah, we have to adapt. So to, I think adaptation was my, was my guiding principle. And a lot of determination by the sound of it. Yeah, and, and also, uh, well, if I couldn't read, then I'd go hiking. <laughs> so, so that also brought me uh, closer to the nature. Yes. And that's really, really uh, healthy and useful. So you had a fascination with physics. Yeah. So uh, neutrons, atoms. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. And the Big Bang. Yeah. At that time, the Big Bang theory wasn't that confirmed. So there, there were many different theories. So I was fascinated. And so I then was determined to study physics in Hong Kong U. And then in my third year, I met the former director. At that time, he was not yet director. Uh, Mr. C. Y. Lam. He taught us atmospheric physics. Only at that time I found out that physics could be useful for weather forecasting. In, in the past, I think we had the, the wrong concept that uh, we need to study geography in order to forecast the weather, but it was not. We need physics and mathematics. So uh, after graduation, uh, incidentally, uh, the observatory had a recruitment of a scientific officer. So I thought that maybe I should give it a try to see whether or not I could apply my study, my physics knowledge, and also contribute something to the society. At that time, I thought maybe forecasting typhoons could also contribute a lot uh, to, so, to the safety of public. Yeah. So you come here. Uh, in what year did you join as a scientific officer? Uh, 1986, right. February. 
So yeah. you're coming in just after the 100th anniversary of uh, the Hong Kong Observatory yep. in 1983. 1983. So you'd have had the old building that we're sitting in. I absolutely love coming up this tree-lined mm -hmm. avenue just off Nathan Road. And then you've got this beautiful this sort of old colonial architecture. And even the signage for the reception mm -hmm. is, is all done in old style. I really like it with the wooden signs. And alongside is a more modern building that was constructed to mark the 100th anniversary. And obviously, probably yep. the observatory needed some expanding. Mm. When you first start here, mm. were you out and about on hillsides and things like that? Unfortunately <laughs> not. I love to, but the first job was a little bit uh, strange initially, at least uh, to me, was in the, um, radiation monitoring uh, because of preparation for building uh, the nuclear power station. Oh, which one? Uh, the Dia Bay. So I was uh, assigned the first job in monitoring the background radiation because you need to have a basic background level before you know that after the starting of uh, the nuclear power station would there be ch any change to the radiation level. So I was assigned this task. It was also uh, really fascinating for me because I was soon sent to the UK to study uh, nuclear physics. Did you have to go to Sellafield? <laughs> Not Sellafield, but uh, Harwell, Harwell okay. uh, the uh, UK Atomic Energy um, Agency. Yeah, because I remember I worked for Eastern Express in the mid-90s, well, about 1994, 95. Mm -hmm. And I remember Dia Bay being a real issue about yeah. our concerns. Yeah. So when was Dia Bay actually built? Dia Bay was built in the 1980s and then opened in the 1990s. So we need several years of measurements of the background radiation in order to show whether the radiation level uh, has increased or, or remained the same after the opening. But I really haven't heard anything about it in recent years. No, it has a really safe operation and, and so far the radiation level hasn't changed. And I think we all know that the background radiation level in Hong Kong was basically due to the granite from the natural uh, environment. Yes. Is it safe to have, you know, if we've got granite mountains and we're making, you know, like there was a cathedral made in Guangzhou, we, we've yeah, yeah, used yeah. our granite for any number of buildings and structures and foundations. So is granite a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, well, of <laughs> course, uh, you need good ventilation indoor, yeah. especially ah. if your building was built using the granite because it would release some uh, radioactive gases to the environment. So you better have a uh, good ventilation and not used air conditioning. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. And so is it just granite or are there lots of... Depending you know, on, on the building material. So there, are there a number of rocks that give off radiation then? Yeah, but, but uh, predominantly uh, is the granite that, right. that we have in Hong Kong. And then I think we, we all know that in Hong Kong, the background radiation level is even higher than Tokyo after Fukushima <laughs> released. Yeah? Is that right? That's right. So that's the nature. And of course, uh, another background radiation is uh, those from the nuclear test in the past. Those tests released in the atmosphere, the radioactive material, still wandering around the atmosphere up to now. And uh, what, sort of Bikini Atoll or where, wherever they were? Well, whatever they have the test in the atmosphere. So, well, the tests in the underground, they are okay, but the, the tests in the atmosphere, you have all those releases still up in the air, and then when it rains, the mm -hmm. steel will bring some increase in the radiation level, even though those increases are relatively minor and they have no health effects. Yes, I was going to say, we do tend to, the idea of radiation, it also with mobile phones, is, mm -hmm. there's always this little bit of a fear of the unknown. But uh, is there... But those are different. Yeah. Those, the, the, the radiation of the mobile phones are so-called non-ionizing radiation, like a microwave we use at home. So those will only uh, 
heat up a little bit, <laughs> like uh, your, your food <laughs> in the microwave oven. But for the nuclear radiation, um, they are so-called uh, ionizing radiation. So they will have material changed to your tissue and, and to materials uh, exposed. So they are totally different things. Yeah. You become a scientific officer in 1986. So tell me about what sort of work you were involved in at that point. Well, I, I have to learn about nuclear physics and radiation protection, how to do measurements. So did you wander around in plastic suits? Uh, no, not, that, not at that time, but uh, my colleagues has to start those jobs uh, afterwards. And I only worked on this area uh, for two years. And then I was sent again to the UK to, to learn about the weather forecasting. The Met Office has a college at that time in Reading. And then after that, I need to join the forecasting operation here to forecast heavy rain, typhoons and things like that before I could be fully recognized as a scientific officer after being trained. When you go and study weather mm. <laughs> or meteorology, mm. so this is rainfall, this is uh, mm -hmm. typhoon, what, what would come under that? Well, a lot. Rainfall, winds, temperature, humidity, even sandstorms. So the whole atmosphere, ocean, all comes together. And nowadays, uh, you need a huge computer to look at all these parameters in order to make a good forecast. But what about in 1986? Oh, at that time, the computer just started to make some computations. But at that time, none of us would believe in the, in the computer forecast. Yeah, so basically at that time, the most important thing is to get all those weather observations around the world. The more observations you got, the further away you can get, then you can make a good scientific judgment. For example, if you see a trough coming in from the north, then you know that, oh, maybe uh, two days later you have a cold surge. So what is a trough? A trough uh, is uh, basically they are waves in the atmosphere, troughs and ridges. And uh, these waves are moving across the, the earth all the time from west to east. We call the westerly winds. And then if you see a trough moving across Lake Baikal in Siberia, then two days later, you most probably will get a winter monsoon in Hong Kong. So that's a so-called rule of thumb for our forecasting. You would have, as you say, rule of thumb, certain mm -hmm. areas. Mm -hmm. So 1986, um, and of course we'll be going back to decades past, but 1986, when it's just interesting to see when you're there, as you say, you're on the cusp of massive computerization, everything connected. But in 1986, would you have been then just linked to all the Met offices around the world and then everybody's providing everybody else with information? Yep, yep. Actually, meteorology was the first really uh, international cooperation of the United Nations. In the 1950s, it started to organize all those free exchange of weather information by all countries, no charge. And then comes the satellite era with satellite deployed for disaster prevention. So it was a really great international cooperation. We're still there today. Look at climate change. So I think it's, it's a model of international cooperation. United Nations begins at the end of the 1940s. So this, this uh, cooperation is starting. So at that time, is it sort of a series of telegrams and things like that to inform other countries? Actually, the exchange of weather information, if you look at the history, it started with the not just telegrams. Before the telegraphs, they exchanged in postcards ah. <laughs> in the 19th century. But then when telegraphs were invented, and then Hong Kong, we have uh, telegraph networks uh, connected us to Singapore, to Shanghai, to Manila, then modern meteorology could start. 
Now, you've been very productive in terms of finding out aspects of the history of the mm -hmm. Hong Kong Observatory and old photographs. Have you found any of these old postcards? Yes, I found just one <laughs> with our founding director, uh, Dr. Dober, sending a postcard, well, not with weather information, but sending a postcard to the Taiwan British ambassador, thanking them for providing meteorological observations to Hong Kong back in, I think, 1885 or six. Yeah. So it's fascinating, you know, what you've managed to discover and also uh, in terms of building up the history here. We're sitting in the history room of the Hong Kong Observatory here and it's marking its 140th anniversary. I'm interested in your career. So you move on from, you've, done you've had a look at nuclear, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're moving into weather. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your next step? Next step was uh, also interesting. Well, I also get some exposure in the computer forecasting, looking at how to do a good one for Hong Kong, a small scale. And then I also took up an interesting post in the seismology. And that division actually was the oldest division in the observatory because it puts all the astronomical observation and almanac, seismology or earthquake monitoring. Also, some things weird geophysics like measurement of gravity, measurement of time, the time surface, and also uh, measurement of geomagnetism. So all these, Geomagnetism. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so all these a little bit off the track things are, are grouped into this division. So I got the exposure to all these at uh, that time, which actually is very useful. So fascinating, yes, because I, when I think about the responsibilities of the Hong Kong Observatory, it's sort of typhoon predictions, rainfall when you can, which mm. I know is a, is a trickier area, yeah, um, yeah. but seismology. So we're not, uh, we, but we do get occasional rumbles here, don't we? Oh, yes. And, and the most uh, serious one was uh, 1918, uh, when uh, there was a big earthquake in Shantou. And Hong Kong has uh, several buildings uh, having cracks. So are we on a fault here? Not in Hong Kong. Well, Hong Kong has uh, some faults, but uh, not too active. But of course, we have to be concerned about the South China Sea because there are some active faults, uh, for example, in the Manila area. So if uh, a big earthquake occurred there, then there might be tsunamis. I'm talking with Shun Chi Ming. We're sitting here at the Hong Kong Observatory. Shun Chi Ming is a former director of the Hong Kong Observatory and also has worked very hard to preserve aspects of the history uh, or research aspects of the history of the observatory. You've just been describing how your career develops and you're learning more. So you're now learning this whole variety of aspects that the observatory provides. So seismic, the weather aspects that we, that's the first thing that I would think about with mm -hmm. an observatory. Mm -hmm. but there's cosmology and there's also this geomagnetic, what's that? Oh, you know, of course, uh, navigation, no matter it's aviation or, or maritime uh, navigations, you need to have a compass. But if you travel around the world, your compass will deviate uh, from the north, the true north, by a different uh, degree. And that's we have to measure the geomagnetic field, which will give us this variation of the compass. So even today, we need to update, uh, because this, this variation changed with time. So we need to update, for example, the airport chart every several years. The airport uh, chart? Yes, the, for example, the, uh, you know how the runways are named? 07 or 25? And that 07 refers to the magnetic north, not the true north. 
So if the magnetic variation changed quite a bit, then perhaps in a decade or more, we may need to change <laughs> the cosine of the runway because of this variation. The geomagnetic information is needed even today. So when the observatory was established in 1883, magnetic measurement was one of those early requirements. In addition to time surface, and also meteorological uh, measurements. Mr. Haywood, one of our former directors, together with uh, Mr. Starbuck, they were captured at Ao Tau. And Ao Tau was actually a geomagnetic station before the war. And Ao Tau magnetic station actually appeared on very important charts, uh, maps of Hong Kong. So you would just have one magnetic station or? One for Hong Kong, yes. Yeah. Initially, it was measured here at the observatory headquarters. Yeah. But after some time, there were construction around, for example, St. Andrew's Church, cutting ah. part of the slopes, which was very close to the magnetic station at the time. So we have to move the magnetic station to a remote area to avoid such interference. And so uh, Aotau was packed as the What's station. What's that, Northern New Territories? Yeah, or? Northwestern New Territories, yeah, yeah near Yunlong. And then in 1941, the 8th of December, the Japanese came across Shenzhen River and then saw Haywood and Starbuck busy trying to uh, dismantle the magnetic station, the equipment, and they captured them. And, yes. and they, they became the first prisoner of war in right. Hong Kong. Leonard Starbuck was in fact the first prisoner of war in Hong Leonard Kong. Starbuck he would later become the deputy first director. prisoner of war in Hong Kong. He would later become deputy director of yep. the Hong Kong Observatory. Graham Haywood was the director post-war. But both of these men, yes, were trying to save the equipment and uh, got. Uh, but I think that nobody quite knew just how fast mm. the uh, Japanese military would come across into Hong Kong. So they would in fact be prisoners of war. But back to you. So. You've had this wide study. Did you then, were you given choices on what you could specialise in? Yes, in fact, I had a really interesting career. After having the basic knowledge of weather forecasting and, and exposure in, in various fields uh, in the observatory, initially, I was assigned to work on uh, the computer system because, as you, you all know now, the computer forecasting is so important. But then I thought that, ah, maybe there are other interesting subjects that I would like to get into, like the preparation of the new airport. At that time, they were starting several projects, including one on wind shear detection by weather radar. And then I started working on, on the wind shear radar. Now, that was quite an issue, wasn't it? Because I remember, I mean, Kai Tak had its issues of you needed, uh, you know, special training for pilots in order to come in at the angle for Kai Tak, yeah. quite complicated. Now, the new Hong Kong International Airport at Chet Black Hawk was throwing up a whole load of new difficulties. And the wind shear, is that caused by the mountains on one side? What actually causes that effect? Yeah, actually, wind shear can have uh, different causes. The most uh, serious one is known as microburst. Microburst. Microburst mm -hmm. uh, caused by thunderstorms. Right. And these, the reason why we need a weather radar to detect wind shear. And in the US, several aircraft accidents yeah. was a very serious one, crash. The microburst is really dangerous because it's so small, so it went undetected by conventional equipment. So, so what is a microburst? 
is about one kilometer or, or a few kilometers in size. Suddenly, a dark draft of cold air coming down from a thunderstorm. And then when the cold air reached the ground, it would disperse. And then when the aircraft was underneath, it could mean a loss of lift to the aircraft. And therefore, if it is close to the ground, it will crash. So the weather radar was very advanced system at that time, and I had to go to the U.S. to bring back this new technology to Hong Kong. So it was a really fascinating project. Mm. So this is you. I mean, I mean, obviously the airport is open somewhat late. In 1998, 1998 yeah. July. So when are you involved in this, about 96? Oh, I started the wind shear radar project in 1993. Mm. And then because uh, it took a few years to manufacture and to, to accept factory acceptance installation. And my project was completed in early 1997. Yeah. So, of course, after the airports opened, we found out that it's not just microburst but also the complicated airflow disrupted by the mountain of Lantau. And that's another kind of wind shear, terrain-induced wind shear. And the weather radar couldn't give us a lot of information because normally those wind shear happen in sunny days, oh. rain-free days. Oh. Yep. So because the wind could come from the, uh, the monsoon or it could come from typhoon. In typhoons, okay, we have rain so we could uh, detect it. In the monsoon, for example, the southwest monsoon, we may not see any rain, but still the wind shear will, will affect the aircraft. So my boss at that time asked me, okay, CM, you go to NASA to look at their LIDAR, or so-called laser radar, to see if they could work for Hong Kong. Therefore, I went to NASA and come back. And Where, and where did you go for NASA? Is that what? Langley. NASA Langley, yeah. And uh, I looked at uh, the laser radar. At that time, the laser radar, the LiDAR, was used... Is this some huge thing? I mean... No, no, it's, it's, it's a just a, like it's a small... It's a box, like a, a small room. Yeah. Not as big as the weather radar because it's very compact in design. So initially, it was actually deployed for monitoring biochemical dispersed because those biochemicals could of course, could be life-threatening and is uh, invisible to the eyes. So uh, you need to look at where they are and, and how they're moving. So the LiDAR could do this, but nobody has deployed the LiDAR for wind shear detection. So when I reported back to the director, I said, OK, the LiDAR can work 24 hours, seven days a week, but we don't have the software nor the algorithm for detecting wind shear. So the director said, OK, CM, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, after three years to well, get. Oh, you had to design the software? Or? Yeah. Oh. Uh, design the software. I, I have a few colleagues helping me to study the cases, the, all the wind shear cases, how to understand them. Uh, and then from the LiDAR, we can really see the wind changes. And then how to write the software to detect. Uh, those uh, signatures and then how to get the message, the automatic wind shear message to the tower in real time. So all this uh, we completed uh, in three years. Wow. It was uh, deployed in 2005 mm. and then we make our name uh, known around the world. And so I managed to, uh, to get onto the international arena to be elected as the president of the Commission for Aeronautical Meteorology in the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization. 
because we actually were the world first yes. to develop the, the software. So did you sell this technology elsewhere? Or? Yeah, well, we, we didn't sell because in the meteorological world, we honor more on the exchange to save lives and not to make business. So we didn't patent the, <laughs> the, the invention, but instead uh, we published papers and uh, lots of uh, visitors coming from around the world to look at our work here. So I think uh, it, it will contribute to public safety. Yeah. And they're incredible development. Are you glad you studied physics? Yes, of course, because not just to become an inventor of wind shear system, but also to be involved in the warning super typhoons like uh, Van Gogh or Hetto and, and, and so all these without physics, I couldn't do it. Being a radio girl, I've just looked at, uh, you've got a bank of times here that goes right from uh, like 1908 to 1928. Mm. And this is how the weather is starting to be announced on the radio. Of course, mm -hmm. RTHK is a public broadcaster, yep. starts as GOW or uh, with the call signal GOW in mm -hmm. 1928. Yeah, actually, the observatory is the predecessor <laughs> yes. of the Radio Hong Kong because the GOW was created here exactly ah. at this at this uh, place. Right. We have a red brick building just down the road, and I discovered that uh, this building actually was built because of housing the first radio transmitter for broadcasting weather information and typhoon signals in voice. In the past, this information are just broadcast using Morse code to the ships. But in 1926, uh, we built this system and started broadcasting, even without the official uh, government broadcaster. And then this system actually was taken away by the government and relocated to the peak, obviously for maximizing the coverage. And then that's how the uh, Radio Hong Kong was started, not just broadcasting the weather information, but also broadcasting music, <laughs> another very important But it started right here. That's right. So we're just wandering down a path. We've come away from the main building of the Hong Kong Observatory, which um, I always love the architecture up here. And actually next to the main building is house number one. And I, I know from Veronica Hayward, who is the daughter of Graham Hayward, a former director, and she's actually had the privilege of staying there. But the house number one, CM, was that actually, is that for accommodation for guests? Or what was the idea of that? Actually, that that was the, the director's quarters. Ah, and so you yeah. let her stay when she was back the one trip, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, um, yeah, her father stayed there. Oh, that's he was where her director. childhood was. There, yeah. yeah, and also many of our directors, they uh, lived there, including Mr. C.Y. Lam and uh, Dr. Lee. I stayed there for about a year and yeah. then give up. But the reason that I gave up was that there was a bird which liked to knock on my windows every morning at 4.30. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. But we are, we, I mean, it is lovely here. We're surrounded by lush trees. It's, it's quite a sanctuary and I, I'd have thought it would be lovely for birds. We've just come down a path and uh, we're here at the Red Brick Building. Yes, and uh, you can see this one is quite old. Um, and I believe that some of the bricks have indications of where it was those bricks were manufactured. But uh, we have been using it as a storage, as a staff club and as a maintenance depot. But when we look at the history, we found that this building was built uh, in the 1920s to house our first uh, radio transmitter. 
for broadcast of the weather information to the public before the Radio Hong Kong was established in 1928. So I was asking before, so you reckon that that first broadcast would have been putting out early weather information? That's right. Weather forecasts, especially the typhoon warnings. But you don't have any record of that? We don't have the record of the messages themselves, but uh, we do have the gazettes announcing that this information will be broadcasted here using the call sign GOW. Ah, interesting. So if I was to make sort of sounds, could you do an early broadcast? Shun Ming there, generous with his time and knowledge. Well, I learned a few things there about forecasting, geomagnetic fields and seismology. I still need to work on magnetic north versus true north. My thanks to Shun Chi Ming, who retired as the Hong Kong Observatory Director in 2020. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage 103.9.